I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. This episode has been sponsored by Timpson, the UK and Ireland's leading retail service provider of shoe repairs, key cutting, watch repairs and much more. Timpson is now one of the largest employers of ex-offenders in the UK. Approximately 10% of their workforce is made up of people who have criminal convictions. They believe in giving people a second chance. They don't judge people on what they have done in the past, preferring instead to focus on what they can do in the future. All the ex-offenders they recruit are risk assessed and provide full disclosure. Timpson wants you to know that the vast majority of ex-offenders they recruit are extremely loyal, productive, hardworking and excellent colleagues. Many have been promoted and fully grasped the second chance they've been given. To put it simply, recruiting ex-offenders has been great for Timpson. They've enabled thousands of ex-offenders to have a second chance in life and go on to have a rewarding career. Many other employers don't realise they are missing out on some very talented, hard-working individuals. Their loss, they say, is Timpson's gain. The retention rate for those recruited from prison or who have a criminal conviction is approximately 75%. This means that the vast majority of colleagues they employ from prison do not re-offend. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Prison and re-offending cost the UK taxpayer around £11 billion a year. By offering people an alternative to crime and enabling them to break the offending cycle, they make a real difference in society. So thanks, Timpson, for sponsoring this episode in which I speak to a former criminal who has embraced his second chance in life. Larry Loughton grew up in the Bronx in New York and was connected to the American Mafia. As a professional jewel thief, he stole millions in a string of robberies before the FBI charged him with racketeering and robbery. He spent 11 years in some of the hardest federal prisons in the United States of America for his crimes. In prison, Larry transformed his life 
and now on the outside, he has a popular YouTube channel where he talks about prison life, the legal system, and his past as a dual thief. He is a powerful advocate for change in the USA, using his past to guide teenagers away from a life of crime. I don't want to edit Larry's tale, so I've decided to split this episode into two parts. You can hear part two next week, or in the next episode, depending on when you're listening to this. You've been labelled as one of America's biggest jewel thieves. So Larry Lowen, welcome to my podcast and thanks for joining me. We've spoken before. I've watched a lot of the stuff that you do on your YouTube channel. It's impressive to hear you talk about all things prison, all things to do with the legal justice system. But I suppose the one question that people are going to want me to ask you at the beginning and the middle and the end is... How did you get into being a jewel thief? You know, thanks for having me, Raph. Uh, you know, we've become friends. I love your show. Love you from Netflix. Love what you're doing here at the podcast. I think more and more people need to hear from guys like you who were unjustly uh, convicted. And now you're doing great things and, and not bitter and you're doing the right things by people. So thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great question what you, you had. And it's a process. Like I grew up in the Bronx, New York, and then Brooklyn, and I was around gangsters and mobsters my whole life. So I was in that world. I was in the criminal world. And my first robbery, actually, was a setup, was a, a insurance job by the owner of the jewelry store. He wanted to make the insurance money, so he needed to be robbed. So they contacted me. Well, as a, uh, how do you put this, a ambitious criminal, I uh, expanded on that. And I said, wait a minute. I, my first robbery in jewelry store robbery was 1989. And when I did it, I made $150,000 cash in my pocket. I said, whoa, I can do this. And then I said, and I had to set it up like a robbery. The owner didn't want to know when, but we didn't know where things were in the store, how many people would be in the store, that kind of stuff. Is there an alarm? We knew all of that from the owner. Now, once I knew all that, I had to do it. So because the, the employee couldn't know because they're going to get questioned. The owner couldn't know when because he might you know, slip or something happened. And what happened was I said, wait a minute, I could do this. And I started looking at jewelry stores. I have like a map of crime to begin with because of where I come from. And then I just started expanding on it and doing the robberies myself and ended up doing between, oh, over 20, 23, 25 uh, robberies, 15 to 18 million dollars up and down the East Coast of the United States. Uh, And it was funny. I mean, people ask me, you know, when did you decide to rob? I said, when my safe got down to (laughs) $50,000. So it was an economical decision. But, you know, I ended up taking that money and buying clubs and doing everything else with it. So, you know, becoming the biggest, it's funny, you know, because nobody, I mean, even in, in America, they had a guy named Murph the Surf who stole, I think it was the Star Sapphire, one of the big diamonds. And it was worth $5 million. And they said, oh, he's one of the great. And then they started talking about, well, what about that guy who robbed 15 to $18 million? And then the FBI in the United States said that you were the, I was the best they've ever seen do it. 
for such a long period of time. And I don't know if that's, you know, you hate to be proud of that. Obviously, I think it just shows that, you know, you can do whatever you want to do in this world if you put your mind to it. And I often say if I would have took those talents and brought them to the business world or brought them somewhere else, you know, at what level? What have I been a CEO of a company? What have I did? Whatever. I don't know. Uh, I don't regret anything. People ask me that all the time. You know, what do you regret? I think regret's a wasted emotion. I think everything that happened to me from being tortured in prison, strapped down naked, beaten and peed on by guards in the United States system. I was in the hole for three years. Uh, you know a lot about prison. Let, let, let me, before we start talking about your prison, and, I, and I'd be interested to hear what happened, let me just take you back, because when you use the term gangster and mobsters, we're not talking about today's gangsters, are we? You know, young kids who think they're gangsters, and they often like to tell people they're gangsters. You're talking about a completely different era. You're talking about the American Mafia. Absolutely, Raph. You know, it's funny because like you made me laugh. I think of kids and they think they're gangsters and they hold their gun. They think they're this or, you know, they hold it sideways. You know, this is a verbal. So I got to kind of explain that. Uh, no, I'm talking about the old time Gambinos and Lucchese's guys came from Italy. I mean, started with Al Capone and back in Lucky Luciano in those days. And this is back, obviously, in the United States in the 20s and then the 30s and the 40s. And the, the, when the mafia in New York was a, the, the most powerful crime, fair, it was an organization. I mean, they changed laws in the United States to get these guys. It's called the RICO, which is racketeering influence, corruption and organization. And I got it. I got arrested under the RICO Act. And that act was to get people who high up, who didn't actually put their hands on the crime, but they organized it or they uh, uh, coordinated it, whatever you'd like to call it. So, uh, no, these gangster kids that think they're, they're gangsters, they're, uh, you know, I don't want to say a pants down their ass. That doesn't even bother. But just don't think you're a gangster because, you know, gangsters to us, to, to myself and maybe older guys like yourself and You've told me your age, so you're younger than me, but you get there and you're chasing me. The uh, gangsters that I remember, we were just an organized, organized, very organized. I mean, you could call it what it was. We, you know, we had structure. We had uh, advisors, you had committees, and you did the, now, did you not do things legal? Obviously, we took the illegal parts of the world. And made them into an organization and an organized crime groups or mafias or families, they call them in the United States. And so obviously you had to be smart. You don't just do that. It's a money making money flows up like in any organization. That's how, how organizations stay strong. And, and they run very with a lot more discipline than a regular business. You don't just get fired. You get axed. You're done. I mean, you know, I've seen. And I've been around a lot of bad, bad stuff in my life. You know, I'm lucky to be alive. One, because I didn't rat. I don't believe in chota, as they call Spanish. or I'm not a rat, and I don't believe in that to this day. And, I, and believe me, I've had guys on my show, and people want me to interview other guys from my show. And I won't. And, you know, I used to hate them. Raph, I used to get so mad. Fucking rats and this. I don't know about I'm sorry about my language. I don't know how you can do it here. But I used to get very mad at that. And now I'm getting to the point age where, I was, you know, I don't care what they did. They got to live with themselves. 
I always used to say, you know, I used to look in that stainless steel mirror in prison, and at least I knew who I was. Uh, you know, it had absolutely nothing to do with the organized crime guys, the people I protected, because that's a big fallacy. You know, oh, they'll, they'll, they'll send you money. You know, that's all bullshit. You're on your own. But I did things because of my own inside, and I'm very happy, and I did all my time, uh, and I beat a life sentence. I beat a life sentence getting my law degree. And so I think it's very important that everybody follows their own path. And again, I used to get mad at them. And now would I ever do business with them? Absolutely not. Would I ever, uh, you know, uh, you know, become close to one of those? No, because how could you trust them? That you know? it's, inter- it's so interesting that you talk. I mean, I was exactly the same. You know, anybody who snitched on anybody or grasped on anybody, I'd look down at that person because I just couldn't believe that their values would allow them to turn somebody in who's trying to do what they're trying to do. So I, I totally agree with you. And I'm in the same place. And even today, at my age and with my experience and with my knowledge, I still find would find it uncomfortable to be in the presence. But I at least have the wisdom now to to want to listen to why they did what they did, why they ratted on or grasped on their mate or why they turned someone. And then there's the other side, which is what you've just explained, which is you grow up with these values, believing that they are the worst of the worst people who snitch on colleagues who are criminals. But the reality is the ones who tell you that's bad are often the most prolific grasses. You know, you often wonder why they never ended up in prison. But that's another story. One of the fascinating things that I listened to um, recently was your story about how you actually got close to to mobsters or original gangsters, if you like. And it was through your dad. I just thought it was really interesting that you used to go along with your dad, who himself wasn't a mobster, as far as I understood the way you were describing it. But he would deliver because of the work he did in the unions. He would deliver money to mobsters. Tell me a little bit about that, because I just thought that was really interesting that you at such a young age were being exposed to that world not because your dad wanted to grow you into that world but simply because it was the world you were living in you know growing up in the Bronx my dad was the he actually worked for the union local 28 in 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 New York City and he built the World Trade Center the actual two towers that went down uh I was on top of the World Trade Center when it it was 110 stories I remember being up there at the 103rd story and they tied a rope to me and let me crawl to the edge, you know, and, and look down. It was just an amazing, I'll never forget. And I have actually pictures of me in a helmet and all, you know, like I went up there, my brother and I, we were young because they built the World Trade Center from 68 to 1968 to 1972. Believe it today, you know, they built the two biggest buildings at the time in the world in four years. Today, it takes them 10 years to build a highway down the road. I mean, I don't get it. But anyway, the unions ran things. So my dad, being the head of the sheet metal workers, that's the guys who do all the duct work in the whole building. So duct work is where it takes the air conditioning and goes through the rooms, and it's done all by union construction workers. And my dad was the head guy on that job, so he used to take envelopes. And they were cash. I don't know how much was in them. And I used to go with him. And I was very close with my dad. And I used to go to a bar called uh, uh, the Triangle Bar. I'm going to be actually filming that soon. I'm going to Triangle Bar. And I remember Vinny 
Vinny Tremamuno was his name. And obviously his daddy was an old timer back then. He had the hat on, the cigar sticking out of his mouth. I mean, like central casting out of a movie, you know. And I used to go in there with my dad and he'd hand an envelope to well, not him, but another guy that met at that place. And we'd go to another place. And I was just tagging along with my dad. I was close with my dad. And that, and that was just like normal work. I mean, he had to go a certain day, usually on a Friday, and he'd give envelopes to certain people. I would sit there and give me coins to go play the uh, Joker poker machines where you can actually win money. Hey, kid, and they'd hit you in the head. Hey, you don't listen to your father. Your father's a good man, you know. And my dad wasn't a mobster. He was a union guy. So he knew what the, the time was. I mean, you couldn't build anything in New York unless you were connected to the mob. You couldn't. The reason Donald Trump liked him or hate him, the reason he got things done is because he knew how to work with the union. And I figured it out by being with my dad. This question got like how I, you know, walked around and, and just listened a lot. You know, I was very good. I was that kid who was a little, boy, were I different. I was a little blonde kid. You could look at the pictures in my book, Raph, at, at that little kid, little blonde kid. I was 132 pounds when I went in the military at 17. So at this time, I'm less than 100 pounds. I was going to be a jockey. That's a true story. But now, but I used to, you know, sit and keep my mouth shut. And obviously, I, I was enamored with it and the power that came with it, the money that came with it. That's the one time our family, we, we grew up a poor family, uh, poor, very low middle class. You know, my mom worked, my dad worked when my dad got laid off before that building. And, you know, we didn't have money. I remember playing basketball in my slippers. You know, you go out by the Air Jordans and this crap. They didn't have that back then. But, you know, those kind of things. Uh, so we grew up with five brothers and sisters. We lived in a two bedroom bungalow house. But my dad was very handy. He put two more bedrooms in the attic. So we ended up having my brother and I once front of the attic, my sister and her, my other sister down there and my mother and father. And a, a little twelve hundred square foot place for five people. Five. We had a bathroom that was so small. I think about it today. And I go, a little, like, I mean, little bathroom with five people, seven adults and a dog. I mean, it was just like, you think how we did it. And, you know, people today, they complain, oh, my kid can't do it. They need a bigger place. The kid's not going to have his own room. What are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You guys don't understand struggles. And, stuff. and I'm not, listen, God bless you. You can do what you want. I think the trappings of your success should be there and everything else that goes along with that. But don't complain, you know. We didn't even have school buses. I mean, we took the city bus to school. So we had a bus pass. And I used to take the trains at 12 years old into Manhattan. I started working 14 into Manhattan, my uncle's printing shop. So it's like, you know, people, oh, don't let them do this. Don't let them do this. But it was, a, it was, I suppose the point is, is it was a different era, wasn't it? You know, the point I wanted to understand was that your life of crime started with your exposure to the American gangster, what you heard, what you saw, and then what you went on to do. And you mentioned that the first jewelry robbery or valuable robbery that you did was an insurance job. And I suppose most people's image of a robbery of a jeweler's, even if it was a setup, 
is guys going in with stockings over their heads, guns in their hands, and it's kind of hit the floor, open the safe, give me the money or give me the jewels, and out you go, a couple of diamonds dropping on the floor as you run out. Was that the reality of your first robbery or or how was it done? No, my robberies were were very calculated. I I would go in. I used to always want to be a fly on the wall to see how long it took them to figure out what happened. I went in as a customer. I used to alter my appearance with different things with glasses. At the time, I didn't wear glasses. I would wear a goatee or not because I didn't at certain times. I had different hair pieces or different wave of the hair. I wasn't just this, you know, recognizable guy now. So what Larry's saying is that he's no longer got the hair that used to go. With. <laughs> exactly. You're lucky you have put up here. So I, I had totally had a different appearance. I'd wear a nice Rolex. I'd wear the owners of these jewelry stores think, wow, I got a customer coming here with money. So they kind of let their guard down here. What you described to your audience just before I started so speaking was a smash and grab. And they are there. A matter of fact, the Pink Panther gang in England and is well known. They are very good at it, though. Very organized, very smart. And, but they were, in a way, smash and grab, but a little bit more organized. The smash and grab guys we know and most people will know are the drug addicts that go into a place quickly break a glass, grab three, four watches and, and rings and run out the store, you know, and the alarms go off. And those guys are only going to get you for so much. Guys like me, I wiped out the store. I went in as a customer. They got almost to know me. And when the robbery had, not right then and there, when the robbery did eventually hit, they were on the floor, tied up, totally out, you know, like, faces in the ground, never hurt anybody in a robbery ref, never had to, never would. And, but then I would take them down and I'd methodically go through the whole store with my guys. One guy's on one side, one guy's one hits the safe in the back room and everything was white. They, you, you know, that store wasn't like, Oh, okay. You know, they got this, 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 every jewelry case, the safe, the special, what they call hide spots they had for loose stones and stuff. They were all gone. So when they were out of business, now, I when I left, we didn't bolt out of there like, oh, my God, you know, they're coming to chase us because you don't want to bring attention to yourself. I mean, we had the spot where we'd bring the car into the back of the uh, jewelry store and we, you know, know the timing, when to do it, when the mailman wasn't there, when the trash wasn't being picked up. So we opened the door, nice nonchalant, pillowcase would be dropped in the trunk, walk out, boom. And I used to always want to know how long it would take for the for the authorities to get them or the people got out of their cuffs. The one story, and I will tell about when the newspaper said I was a nice guy or the, the person, I was doing a robbery, just like I said, the people are in it. Now, if you know anything about jewelry stores and anybody's been in one of the orders, I'm sure they have, you know, they have these buzzers on the door. They have to buzz you in. Well, I love those buzzers, Raph, because nobody can surprise me. I, they want me in there, so they see a nice guy with the roll. Oh, bleh. hey, hey, we start looking around. I'm a contractor in the area and looking for a ring. They get really comfortable, never touching a thing. Believe it or not, I was always conscious. Well, anyway, as I'm doing that, now doing a robbery, the buzzer rings. Well, I have the buzzer now. They're all around. You know where to hit them. I hit the buzzer, and in comes an old couple. 
Now, they looking around, and nobody there. The people behind the counters on the floor. I come up to them. I have a sports jacket on. I open my sports jacket, and there's my gun. And they look, and they go, oh, they were, like, giving this, this fright face, and they were going to get on their knees. And I stopped. I said, no, 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 no. Just come with me. Don't worry. This Nothing will happen. Don't worry. Everything's calm. This have this is personal. We said some stuff. Put these people at ease. We put them in the in a chair. Didn't tie them up. Didn't. I never gagged anyone. Always worried about somebody getting mm-hmm. uh, you know, choking or something. But always people wore flex cuffs. I used to use the wire tie cuffs. They could get them at a Home Depot or anywhere. So anyway, I uh, don't cuff these people. I said, just look at the wall. We'll be out of here in five minutes. Everything's okay. And they didn't have to get on their knees. Now, there's people on the floor. There's the, the two people on the floor cuffed up right kind of in front of them because now they're behind the counter and just looking at a wall. And I had to go back and forth. And, and the idiot I had at the time, Jimmy, I gave him the, the, the nod to get the car and bring it around. He didn't bring it around. And we were always back and forth. It looked like a, a clusterfuck. But it worked <laughs> out. We were in Sarasota, Florida. And I just came back when I said, everything's all right. I'm just testing. I told you five minutes. And they go, okay, okay. They were really nice old couple. So we do the robbery. We get away with it. And it was in a, always in a plaza. As a matter of fact, there was a dive store next to it, you know, scuba diving and stuff. I remember that very well. So anyway, we get away with it and stuff. So I always used to, now I'm gone. When I did my robberies, Raph, within 24 hours, the stuff is out of my hands. Things are melted, burnt, closed, chained. You, it was done. I mean, literally in New York, from Florida to New York. 17 hours, drove right, did everything right, never messed up. The next day, we read the papers. In the newspaper, it said, oh, robbery happens in Sarasota, you know, big robbery, $800,000. And they interviewed the old ladies and the old guy. They go, but he was a nice man. (laughs) (laughs) Was these robberies all like the first one that you mentioned, an insurance job? Or were they carefully picked because of their location? And you mentioned, and I'm just trying to paint this picture, where you mentioned that you'd go in and you'd case the joint, let's say, where you've gone in, you've seen where the cameras are, if they had cameras in those days, watching the movements of customers, etc. And then what, would you leave the store and then on another occasion turn up, press the buzzer, they know who you are, you'd go in and then your man or whoever it was you were working with would follow and then you'd subdue those that worked in the shop as you went about nicking the the goods? Well, you know, great questions. Uh, First of all, uh, no, no, the first one was the only insurance job, only insurance job. That was the one where we knew all the stuff. After those, they were not only cased, and casing means knowing every part of a store. I knew the direction of the store where it was pointing because I wanted to know if the sun was rising or falling. So the glare off the glass in the store, Uh, if the sun is rising in the east, which it does, and the face store is facing east at 10 in the morning when the sun is hot coming up, it would hit the glass where you could not look into it unless you put your hands, cupped them up against the glass and looked in. You can walk right by that store look that way and you couldn't see a thing. So I knew that. I knew when the mailman was coming, when the employees were coming, what cars they were in, where the cops were at that time, what uh, any, uh, it was always in a plaza. It was never in a mall. It was in a plaza where there were a lot of people around. 
I like that. So when you case the store, you can blend in. You're not, oh, who's that guy there for a while? What is he doing? You know, you didn't have to. I mean, you could be sitting in your car like you're waiting for your wife to come out of the grocery store or the hair salon and reading a paper and you would look like a normal guy. So it wasn't anything to do with that. And now when going into the store, it was never the first time. It was always sometimes a second and third time they would get to know you. I would go in and I I had a, a typical line, which was, hey, I'm new in the area. I'm a building contractor. I bought my wife a, a half a carat, three quarter carat 10 years ago when I didn't have money. Now I'm looking to upgrade to about a carat and a half, maybe a little bigger. So I'm just looking and and I'd say, I'm just looking, though. And they think they got you got the Rolex on. I got a pinky ring that's full of diamonds. I'm looking good. It's sometimes not a, a, a sports jacket, but, you know, I did, I had tattoos, but not a couple of them. And I want them covered. It's always had like a long sleeve shirt, maybe up a little so they can see the Rolex. And you want them to go, oh, wow. Because they did. Listen, the jewelry business. I hate to say it is a big criminal business himself. Listen, any any business that they could say they're going to give a seventy five percent off, what do you think they were charging to begin with? <laughs> you know, seventy five percent off today. What the fuck were you charging me yesterday? <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. But and I even went to the GIA Institute, which is the Gemological Institute of America, to learn about diamonds, so I don't get ripped off. And when I sell them, but not only selling them, when I'm robbing, I knew what I was talking about. Whether it was Lazar, Kaplan, diamonds, the cut, the diamond, the geometric cut. A lot of people think the cut, you know, a round diamond has to have a certain geometric cut to reflect light the right way. Diamonds are, are so, and the cutters make them, because when light reflects into a diamond and it's cut the right way, it reflects off itself and back up, and that's where you get the brilliant. You know, you'd see jewelers show you a diamond and put it in a light. Well, I'd make a piece of glass or a piece of garbage look beautiful and light. You know, it don't mean anything. You take a ring and you put it under a table, and whatever little light is around will reflect back. Then you know you got a good cut. But there's also ways of measuring the cut. There's another trick in diamonds. If you want to know if a diamond is fake or not, you fog it you know you fog the diamond and if it fogs it's no good it, 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 that means it's it's a fake oh right oh, oh in, in the same way that you you kind of fog on your glasses to clean your glasses if you absolutely on a diamond i didn't know that that's a good little trick so all you women out there who have had diamond rings from your fiance's you can, <laughs> first thing you, you do is <laughs> And if it, then you can throw it at him and get rid of him. You know what I mean? I know. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast and please share and follow us on social media. Don't forget to listen to part two of this interview, which will be out next Wednesday. The aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week. If you want to support, help produce or advertise on this podcast, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Sound recording was by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Road Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.